1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, uh, up to verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Over the years... As a pastor, I've had inquiries about whether I would be interested in being the pastor of this church or that. And usually those conversations didn't get beyond, no, thank you very much, I I have a calling and, and not interested. There were some that were intriguing, but I know that there's one church that I would definitely not be interested in pastoring. And that's the church in Corinth. Now, I'm not saying I shouldn't be interested in that church. But I'm saying I wouldn't be, because I don't think I would be up to pastoring that church. Why not? Well, they had a number of problems. They had divisions, immorality on one side, people that were too lax in their morals, and taboos on the other side, people who were too strict in their morals. They had lawsuits, they had false teaching, they had selfishness, they had showiness. They had all of that going on in the church. Even so, Paul considered them a church. He considered them a church, and he called them a church. Now, he did ask them to test to see whether they were really Christians or not, but he called them a church. And he called them to function as a church should function. And he patiently, through a number of letters and visits, some of them, some of which were very painful to him and to them, urged them to be what the church should be. Now, there were at least four sources of the divisions in the church, and these sources of division haven't gone away among churches. The first was factionalism based on fan clubs around certain favorite preachers. 
And so they, they, they got into their fan clubs and, and fought about who was the better preacher. They also had opposing social habits. And you can imagine how this would work. You had some people that came out of paganism. You had people from Jewish backgrounds. And they were in one church with, with opposite social habits. They also had economic disparities. They had free men and women. And they also had slaves in the same church and everything in between. And they also had an emphasis on spectacular spiritual gifts. They had spiritual gifts. They were loaded with spiritual gifts in that church, a very gifted church. But they liked the showy gifts most of all, particularly speaking in tongues, which they liked to practice all at once uh, in the public setting. And it caused chaos in their worship services. Now, the section we're studying today is in the middle of a section about spiritual gifts. Um, But it contains general principles that indicate how a church should function. And um, it says basically this, it should function like a body. It should function like a body. Now, uh, a human body, that is. Now, when I say that, you probably say, yes, I know that, because the church is the body of Christ. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know which, but that, that expression, that metaphor, the body of Christ, has become so common that we, we use it without thinking about the implications of what that means, that the church is like the human body. And so what we're going to try to do today is take a step back and look at that metaphor, that comparison between the church and the human body, to see what are some of the implications so that we might know how we are to function in the life of, a church, of the church. Now, We don't know if Paul was original in applying this body imagery to the church, but he made ample use of it. He mentions it in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 12, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Colossians chapter 1, 24. So he mentions it in addition to here in Corinthians, he mentions it in a number of other places. And what what the basic comparison is between the church and uh, the human body is this. Both the human body and the church are unities that have members. They are unities that have diverse members. And he repeats that four times in this section. Uh, Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Look at verse 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's the basic point of comparison. The body is a unit and it has various members. The church is a unit and it has various members. Now, um, as we have mentioned, some in the West, with our emphasis on individuality, have questioned the idea of church membership. But here we have a specific reference to the members of the church. And so how do people deny church membership with such a a clear reference to church members? Well, what they do is they say, well, yes, the church 
the universal church, the worldwide church has members, and I'm a member of that, but, but I resist the idea of local churches having members. But I want you to see something. This does, by the way, this does emphasize the universal church. And the universal church is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we saw something of that this week, that our church could help a church in Cooper City, that we're part of the same church. Uh, and when we travel around, it's always a delight to meet other Christians because immediately we feel like we are part of one body. And I don't want to diminish that at all. Membership in the universal church is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I want you to see what Paul is doing here. He says, not only that, but if you look at verse 27, he changes the, the pronoun from we, all of us who profess Christ and have the Holy Spirit, we, and then he changes it to you in verse 27. He says, now you, and this is you plural, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Who is the you? It's the Corinthian church. And so here is an explicit reference to members of a local church, the church in Corinth. Um, If we use some illustrations or some comparisons, we can see the illegitimacy of saying, well, there's membership in the universal church, but not in the local church. Do you you all know what the Rotary Club is? It's It's a service club. I uh, used to be men, businessmen, particularly now it's men and women. And um, I was a member of the Rotary Club at, at one point in, in Guadalajara. Uh, and there's also something called Rotary International. Rotary International is the, the universal rotary all over the world. Uh, if I were as a Rotarian, which I was for a little while, uh, to meet another Rotarian, we would have a question that we would ask each other. We would say, oh, what Rotary Club do you belong to? Now, what would happen if somebody said, well, I'm a part of Rotary International, but I don't belong to any Rotary Club? And, and then I'd say, well, what do you mean by that? Where, where do you pay your dues? Oh, I don't pay my dues. Where do you serve? Oh, I don't serve. I just have the spirit of Rotary International in my heart, and I feel that I'm a Rotarian. Now, that, that sounds odd, doesn't it? There's something suspicious about that. Or if you were to, to, to meet some very tall, muscular person, and, and you say, what do you do? And the person says, well, I'm, a, I'm an NBA player. And the immediate question you would ask would be, what? Team? What team? And he says, oh, I don't play on a team. I play for the NBA. <laughs> oh, you, you, what do you mean? He said, no, I'm an independent NBA player. Well, with whom do you practice? Well, I don't practice. Well, what jersey do you wear? I don't wear any particular jersey. Oh, you mean you're a free agent and you're going to join? No, 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 I'm not going to join. I don't believe in that sort of thing. I just want to play for the NBA. Ridiculous, right? (laughs) And that would be the same sort of contradiction if we say, well, I'm a part of the universal body of Christ, but I don't identify with any local body. And, and, and Paul is saying, we all are, and you all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, going back to the uh, opening verses here, after Paul announces this idea of the body with many members, in verse 13 he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, 
slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Why is he emphasizing the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit is the one who, who formed them into the body of Christ. Well, what was one point of division in this church? Gifts of the Holy Spirit. So they were taking what the Holy Spirit had given them, and they were using those gifts to do what? To divide among themselves. And he's emphasizing, rather, what the Holy Spirit does is he's the one that makes you into a body. And he says, he uses two expressions here. He says, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So this is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then the other expression he uses, we were made to drink of one spirit. Now, these Corinthians had been baptized in water. And we know that because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, Paul is talking with them, and here he's asking about the divisions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's assuming what? They were baptized but not in the name of Paul. So they were baptized in water, and that water baptism is parallel to and symbolizes the spirit baptism, being baptized in the spirit. Now the second, uh, in addition he says, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. So what's he doing? He's taking away these sources of division, these racial sources of division, these economic sources of division. All of you were baptized in the same spirit. And then the second expression is unparalleled in Scripture. He says, you were made to drink of the Spirit. That's an unusual expression, isn't it? Um, and, and what might it mean? Well, another text that mentions drinking and the Holy Spirit together is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit. Now this is instructive because it, it helps us understand the idea of, of drinking of one spirit. When you drink a great deal of alcohol, what does that alcohol do to you? It takes possession of you, doesn't it? It changes you. It alters the way you see, it alters the way you hear, it alters the way you think, it alters the way you walk, it alters the way you sleep, it alters everything about your being if you take in alcohol in in great quantity. And that gives us an idea of how we can know whether we've been baptized in the Spirit or not. That gives us an idea how we can know whether we have drunk of the Holy Spirit. Is He influencing our lives? Does He change the way we see things, the way we hear things, the way we think, the way we move, the way we act, the way we live our lives? That's how we can know, and this gives us a test. Uh, if we're, if we have the Holy Spirit or not, are we being influenced? Are we being guided day by day in our lives by the work of the Spirit? So that's the constitution of the body: one body, many parts. Then he takes this, 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 this mega illustration, this mega metaphor, and he applies it to two situations, two anomalous situations. The first situation is in verses 14 to 19. And the first application of this body imagery is to those who would diminish the importance of their own participation in the church. So the first application is to those who say, the church doesn't need me. 
I don't need to be a part of the church. The church doesn't need my participation. That's the first direction. And the way he does this is he rather humorously, he personalizes some body parts. He gives them voice and he allows these body parts to speak. And when they speak with the attitude of some Christians, we see immediately how ludicrous this attitude is. Uh, For example, in verse 14, the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see what's going on here? Uh, Some parts were saying, well, the church is really for people like that. The church is for those members, but it's really not for me, and I'm not really a part of the body. And this is somebody who would exclude himself or exclude herself from participation in the church. And then he asks more questions. Verse 17, he asks another one and says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? That's frightening, isn't it? That's sort of a monster movie sort of image, isn't it? The whole body is an eye. Or if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? There wouldn't be any. And then if you look to verse 19, another, another question, a general question. If all were a single member, where would the body be? You see, the, the, the point is, where would the body be without you? That's what he's saying here. Where would the body be without you? The body would be deficient. The body would be an amputee. The body would be missing a part, and the body could not function as the body is designed to do. Because every part is essential to the body. That's the first application. Um, bodies don't function well without all their members. And members don't function well without bodies. Uh, bodies that have pieces amputated never function the same again. Bodies that have organs extracted never function the same way again. And what happens to those pieces that are taken off? They don't thrive either. Because they need the body, and the body needs them. That's the first point. If you're tempted to apply this this idea to yourself, well, the body really doesn't need me. I'm okay without the body. The body is okay without me. No, it's not. And no, you're not. You need the body. The body needs you. Now, the next application of this imagery is to those who would diminish the importance of others' participation in the church. So the first group of people are saying, the body doesn't need me. The second group is saying, the body doesn't need them. certainly needs me, but it doesn't need them. And so Paul takes this imagery, once again, and he works it around. Once again, personifying the body parts. Uh, Look at verse 21. Uh, He says here, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Ludicrous, right? The eye does amazing things, doesn't it? The eye is a, a marvel. But 
the eye can't pick up a fork. It can't do that. What has to do that? The hand has to do that. The head's amazing with, with, with the brain. It, it, it's amazing. We can, we can solve quadratic equations with the brain. But we can't kick a soccer ball or walk across the street with the brain alone. And so, no part of the body can say to any other part of the body, I don't need you. That's the idea of the body. Bodies are what? Unities that have various parts that work together. Also, in the human body, apparently weaker members are necessary. And we know this even more than they knew this, because we understand human anatomy at, at a much more granular level than, than they did in their day. And we understand how the, the smallest parts of the body are necessary. Do you know why when you speak, it's not too loud inside your own head? Because it could be. It could be irritating. Every time you spoke, it could be too loud. Because of the smallest muscle in the body, the stapedius. And it's one millimeter long. And what it does is it closes the stapes or the stirrup when you speak so that it's not too loud. And it also protects your inner ear from damage. The smallest bone in the body connected to the smallest muscle in the body. And they're necessary. And we're discovering things for many years. We didn't know why we had appendices. And they seemed like a useless sort of uh, organ. And now, fairly recently, we, we discovered that, that that appendix has a purpose. And when it's taken out, when it gets affected, then the body no longer has the ability like it did to repopulate the gut bacteria. That's what it appears, appears to be for. So we, we, we now know, even more than they did, that even these, these small, these weak, these parts of the body that we might be tempted to despise, they're important to the body. And in addition to that, we have parts of our body that, that cause us embarrassment. They're private parts to our body. And so what do we do to the private parts of our body? We adorn them with clothing. And that's what Paul says here. He says uh, in verse uh, 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So that's what we do in the body. We have parts of our body that, that we want to protect and to cover And so what do we do? We adorn them with clothing. And we honor them. And Paul says, that's how the body of Christ is as well. God does that. And twice he says that God is the one. Look at verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. You don't like your part in the body? Guess who put you there? Guess who made you that part? God did. And in addition, you don't appreciate that other person's part in the body? Guess who put that person there? God 
did. That's what it says in verse 24. The second time he says this, um, our presentable parts do not require this extra, extra care, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. How does he do that? Well, one of the ways he does that is by honoring those who have less in whatever, whatever that less might be. If you look at James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? So do you see what God does? He takes some in the body that we might tend to despise or look down on or overlook or think less of. And what does He do? He makes them rich in faith. And He gives them the kingdom. He honors those who might tend to be despised in the world or even, tragically, in the church. And so, what do we conclude? Not only are we necessary... But they are too. So we ought not to diminish our own participation and we ought not to diminish the importance of the participation of any. Why? Because this is God's design for the body. Now, um, the results are in verses 25 and 26. The results are this, are these rather two, that there may be no Division in the body. No division in the body. That's the first one. No division in the body. A human body that is healthy, there is no division in the human body. It's a unity and it functions like a unity. Only when pathologies or illnesses develop uh, is there division in the body where one part of the body is, is warring against the other part of the body. But a body, a healthy human body is a unity. There is no division. It all works together. And so he says that's the purpose of God composing the church the way He composed it, that there would be no division in the body. That there would be unity in the body, in the church. And I give thanks to God, I give thanks to God that even though I've been in ministry over 30 years in pastoral ministry, I have never been in a divisive church situation. Thanks be to God. I have always been in situations, not without difficulties, not without conflicts, but always being willing to work those out. To work like a body. And that's what bodies do, don't they? When, and that's what he goes on to say, and that's the second implication that the members may have the same care for one another. That's what a healthy body does, doesn't it? What happens when you kick your toe against the furniture, the leg of the furniture? What does the rest of your body do? Your mouth yelps, right, in pain. Your hand grabs that toe and squeezes it to try to to squeeze out that pain, right? Everything participates. When there's pain in the body, every other piece of the body jumps in to help. And that's what he says here. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
And what a joy it was this past week. There was one church across the county that suffered and we were able to join in in a small way. And other churches have done that as well to to help and to, to suffer with them and to, to lament with them, but also to, to help them out. But really where we do that in a day-to-day way is in the local church. It's wonderful that we can give to the compassion offering of our denomination. That's, that's wonderful and I encourage that. It's wonderful that we can help a church across the county. I love that and I encourage that. But where do we do it day to day? How do we know who's suffering? How do we know who's rejoicing? We know that because we're living together as Christians. We're living as the church of Jesus Christ. Based on what I have seen in these just few years of returning to the States, this seems to be this this mutual knowledge and this mutual concern for one another seems to be something that has slipped in the church. That's my experience anyway. Uh, just some anecdotes that, that left me confused. Early on here, some people who were at the beginning participating in our church and uh, the wife was having surgery, and so I stopped by the hospital. And she happened to be coming out of surgery right at that moment, and the husband was there, and then the, the family members came in. And the husband was shocked to see me there. He'd never seen anything like that. And he, that family has been in churches for a long time. He was shocked that a pastor would go to the hospital and visit Never seen anything like it. And he went on and on about how, how amazing that was. And I left scratching my head, wondering, that's a shocking thing? I had a conversation with Pat's sister, Carla. And those of you who have been around a little while remember Carla. She died of cancer. And um, hard for all of us, and still hard. But when she was suffering from her cancer... Hurricane Irma came by. And we were spared, but not completely. There was a great deal of damage, and in Carla's home, she was able to get out, but in her home, uh, a number of big branches uh, came down. And so a few of us got together, and some guys went over, and we took a few tools, and they had a chainsaw. And we got to use a chainsaw. And, And so... Please don't think this was some great sacrifice on our part. I mean, because three men with a chainsaw, I mean, that, that's a day out. So, so we were having a great time cutting up wood with a chainsaw. And then Carla came back and she, she thanked us and thanked us and thanked us. And I simply said, Carla. Now, Carla had been in the church for a long time. I said, Carla, that's what the church is for. And to my shock and surprise, she said, I didn't know that until now. And I asked myself, why didn't she know that? What was missing in her church experience? You know what helped us grow together as a church? This is not how I would write a church planting manual. Do you know what helped us in that first year? Things like that. Suffering together. In that first year, we had a number of our beloved families move away. And that, that was hard. And 
I did a couple of funerals in that, that first year. And there were other sicknesses and sufferings that we had in, in our startup church. And, and I wonder, what are you, what are you doing, Lord? Why? With, with this new group, we're trying to get off the ground, we're, we're trying to move forward, and there's just there's so much suffering here. And I realized what God was doing is that He was knitting us together as a body. And I look back on that first year and I say, thanks be to God, not for the suffering, but for the way the body, that when we came together, we were, we were individuals coming from different places and trying to figure out if this was going to be our home church. And, 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 and suffering came into our existence. And, and what did we do? Well, some members suffered. And all suffered together. And in other cases, some members were honored. And all rejoiced together. And so, God began to build what has become this beautiful community of mutual concern for one another. By caring for one another, we are simply doing in a small way, what Christ has already done for His body. In Ephesians chapter 5, usually we look at this chapter when we're talking about marriage. And indeed it is about marriage, sort of, because it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. For whom did Christ die? He died for the church, it says, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then it says this, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. And then it says, this mystery is profound. And I thought he was talking about marriage. And he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's he say? What did Christ do for the church? Christ gave Himself for the church. What does Christ do for the church? He cares for the church. He nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. And by showing this mutual concern for one another in the church, we are simply carrying out this love of Christ that He has for His body. He loves His body. And we love His body as well. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the church. We thank You that Jesus died not for disparate individuals, but He died for the church. And we thank You for the universal church and what a joy it is to be, to be part of, of something so, so big, the biggest thing on the planet, the biggest organization that, that comprises millions and millions of people around the world. And we thank You that we participate in that universal body, but we thank You also that that participation is localized. We thank You for local churches, for this local church and many other local churches, and that we are the body of Christ and we are individually members of it. 
And Father, I pray for us as we we receive our first members in the not too distant future, that you that you place in our church those whom you want to be here with the gifts that we need, with with a desire to, to have this concern one for another, and with a desire to show the unity of Christ to a watching world. We pray, O oh God, that as people see us, as Jesus says, that they would know we are Christians by our love. And we pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen.